All right, Acts chapter 12 is where we find ourselves tonight. Acts chapter 12. History lesson, we'll see if there's, or history trivia, see if there's any history buffs in here. Who was the first sitting president to visit California? Anybody know who's not looking at the notes? It was not Roosevelt. The year was 1880. The man was Rutherford B. Hayes, everyone else's favorite president, our 19th president, if you're keeping track. Hayes was seen as as a bit of a lame duck, and so he packed up his family on a great tour of the West. They crossed the border on what was at the time California's biggest holiday, Admission Day, September the 9th. General Sherman, not the tree, but the general, General General Sherman was along for part of the tour. At one stop, he said this of Hayes, he is no longer president of the Atlantic states or of the Mississippi states, but of all states of which are one and will be forever and ever. The train carrying the president worked its way down from Oakland through the valley in route to Los Angeles so that he could attend two fairs that were being put on there. When the train reached Merced, the first high-speed rail, everybody, when the train reached Merced, Hayes was still asleep, but a brass band and a crowd of shouting townspeople caused him to dress hastily and come out, shake a dozen or so hands, while the animated citizenry congratulated the sleepy, cheap executive. Now, in our text tonight, another head of state takes a trip out of the capital to be seen and to make an appearance at a festival of games. Though Herod was not exactly a lame duck, he had just suffered a very public embarrassment. Peter, a prized prisoner that he was hoping to use for political gain, had just mysteriously escaped and was nowhere to be found. Herod, thwarted and wanting a change of scenery for himself, traveled up to Caesarea to provide over some spectacles, games, in honor of the emperor. There, he was well-received, not because he was a good man, not because he was a great king, but because certain people were trying to curry favor from him and save themselves from his terrible hatefulness. Now, this Herod, in our text, by the way, is Herod Agrippa. His grandfather, Herod the Great, was the one who killed the babies of Bethlehem. Agrippa's uncle, who was named Herod Antipas, was the one who killed John the Baptist. I sense a theme developing. Uh, It is Agrippa's son, Agrippa II, who we will see Paul preaching to on his way to see Caesar way late in Acts 26. So sort of clear as mud, right? So it's this family. You've got a grandfather, a grandson, then his son. You've got an uncle in there. They're all a bunch of killers and weirdos. Now, Herod Agrippa, in our text, he's an interesting character. On the one hand, we see he's a very base man. We saw a little bit of his activity last time. He's a political opportunist. He's a killer, killed for fun. He was vengeful and brutal. And yet we find in history that the Jewish ruling class loved him. In fact, Jewish historians and writings praise him and his legacy. In our text, he parades as a splendid and dominating king. Of course, he was installed by Rome, but the territory he governed was as large as that ruled by his grandfather, Herod the Great. In fact, by 44 AD, we're told he had become one of the most powerful kings of the East. Now, on a spiritual level, we saw last time that Herod served as a sort of piece of very heavy artillery in Satan's war against the church. 
Uh, Our enemy, the devil, seeks to tear down God's people, destroy God's plan, thwart the work that the Lord is doing. And during this church age in the book of Acts, he's using several different kinds of tools. He sends false teachers in, he sends persecution, tries to send division, those sorts of things. Herod, King Herod, is a pretty big piece of artillery uh, that can do some significant damage on the physical plane. And we saw that last time as he started making sport of killing Christians. But after a single volley from this heavy artillery, the Lord is going to respond in swift judgment. Some Bible dictionaries define the term Herod. Herod's not a name, it's a title. And some Bible dictionaries you'll find describing the word as meaning the glory of the skin. And tonight we'll see him decked out in human glory, receiving the worship of a crowd of people who declare that he had the voice of a God, not of a man. He certainly behaved as if his was the final authority. And so this evening, looking at this so-called splendid king, as we look at this so-called great king of the East, at the zenith of his power and his prestige, I'd have us compare him with our great and coming king, King Jesus. Side by side, whatever power, whatever splendor, whatever import Herod thought he had is shown as abject refuse in comparison to the might and the majesty of the one true king of all kings. And by contrasting the foul with the flawless, we can celebrate more and more just how great and glorious our king is and prompt ourselves to joy in serving and pleasing him uh, anew. Verse 20, we read this. Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Together they presented themselves before him. After winning over Blastus, who was in charge of the king's bedroom, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food from the king's country. I don't know why. Whenever I read the name Blastus, I always feel like he's going to show up in Rogue One or a Star Wars movie of some kind. Blastus! We note that... uh, Tyre and Sidon were not part of Herod's dominion. He ruled a lot of territory, but these two cities were not two of them. We don't know what they had done to get on his bad side, but we can sort of speculate that it was something petty and inconsequential. There is no historical offense or problem recorded. There's no historian who says, oh yeah, by the way, they had sent people to try to kill him or anything like that. Rather, we see that Herod was a petty man and probably whatever was going on Uh, was something petty and exacerbated by the fact that he was embarrassed by the escape of Peter just a short time ago. Now we note here that Herod was a man of unconditional hate. He killed Christians indiscriminately back in 12 verse 1. He hated the people of these two cities indiscriminately, categorically. I just hate all those people up there. And he hated them so much so that he was planning to decimate their very lives. When it says he was very angry, it's a term that means he was contemplating war against them. Now, as a subject of Rome, he could have pretended to be king all he wanted, but in reality, he's under the emperor. And as a subject of Rome, he couldn't actually send soldiers to lay siege to these towns. But he could start a trade war, turning off their food supply, thereby inflicting a terrible suffering on a great number of people. Now turn and consider our Lord, the king of unconditional love, the one who never withheld compassion, not even for his betrayer, Judas Iscariot, the one who even after his crucifixion sent messengers again and again to the very men who conspired his murder, the king who like a good father provides the daily bread that we need, the one 
who is our sun and shield, the Psalms say, who, with, who will withhold no good thing from those who do what is right. Pretty big difference. Now, the people of Tyre and Sidon sent a delegation to beg for peace. To do so, they had to cajole and scheme, probably had to bribe Herod's personal attendant, Blastus. Consider our king. He voluntarily, of his own accord, left his throne like a shepherd going after a lost sheep. He didn't do so only once, but he seeks to save each individual through human history. And when we think about those images that the Bible gives us of the action of God making it possible for man to be saved, sometimes we think of it in general terms. God loved the whole world, and that's true. But also to think of the fact that God does that on the individual level again and again and again and again and again for the multiplied billions of people who have lived throughout human history, searching after each and every one of those lambs, hoping to find them, hoping to bring them back into his fold, hoping to reconcile them. That's an amazing thing to think about. He knocks at our door, hoping we will invite him in, right? We don't send a delegation to heaven. We don't build a tower up to the sky, hoping to get God's attention and hoping to earn some sort of favor from him. We don't have to bribe his friends in order to keep him from hating us. No, he came down from his throne so that he could make peace with us. Agrippa went about in a hostile state of mind, we're told. He plotted wars in his heart, how he might harm those who had slighted him. But Christ Jesus sends his power and his people throughout the world to proclaim the message of peace with him, a message of reconciliation to go and tell people that God has built a bridge so that individuals might be saved, so that nations might be saved. Despite the fact that our offenses towards God are not petty things, they are unspeakably grotesque and treasonous. Human rebellion against the king of heaven and earth deserves total destruction, total judgment, total ruin and annihilation. And yet the Lord made a way with the Father and the Spirit so that he could take our place and have God's wrath for our sin poured out on himself instead of us. What a king we serve. Verse 21 says, on an appointed day, dressed in royal robes and seated on the throne, Herod delivered a speech to them. The historian Josephus, not a Christian, he was a Jewish fellow, he records that Herod's garments that day were made wholly from silver. Wow. He says that he was so resplendent as to spread awe over those that looked upon him. But really, it wasn't even his robe, right? It wasn't his throne. This imposter was no son of David. He didn't have a right to rule. He was given charge over Judea because he had befriended Caligula, and others in the Roman court. He was there because they allowed him to be. Earlier in life, he had to flee debtors he owed great sums to and have family members bail him out. Then he had to flee to a different place from the place he had fled to because he was convicted of taking a bribe. Later on, he was heard speaking to someone about how he hoped Tiberius the emperor would die so that his friend Caligula would, become, uh, would be put on the throne and so he was sent to prison. This is the kind of guy we're dealing with. Jesus Christ is a debtor to no one. He lives in perfect righteousness. He is God, mighty and awesome. He cannot be bribed. To him belongs the earth and all that is in it, it is all rightfully his. We are rightfully his. And in his grace, 
He seeks with all of that power and all of that right and all of that majesty and all that should be given to him, he seeks not to enrich himself as king, but to share his eternal inheritance with us, his children. An open invitation to give the glorious splendor of his inheritance to anyone who will own him as king. Going as far as even sharing the rule of his kingdom with us. I will say the silver robes worn by Herod that day must have been a sight to see. I've never seen somebody wearing robes made completely out of silver, but I bet it was magnificent on the human level. Did you know that companies are starting to infuse silver into garments? This is true. It's not not true. (laughs) They do it because they claim that silver has antimicrobial properties. They're probably selling a lot right now. And the idea is that antimicrobial silver put into certain things like socks and exercise equipment will cut down on odor. That's the idea. Doctors aren't too keen on it, though. While the risks are small, some worry that wearing silver could eventually wear down a person's microbiome to an undesirable degree. Others point out that when you wash it, trace amounts of silver dislodged by laundering them are going to leak into the water supply, and now you'll be drinking the silver that you were wearing a minute ago. Anyway, the things you learn, I didn't know people were putting silver into clothes, so wow. But a robe of silver, you know, in one sense, it ironically illustrates the corruption of this king. The plating on the outside may have looked fine in that one moment, but the impurities within were inevitably eating away, bringing the green tarnish of decay. The gift my wife gave me from our wedding were silver cufflinks. Really great. Uh, beautiful. Well, they're not beautiful right now because left on their own, when I, whenever I pull them out once a year when we go to a wedding or something like that, I know I don't usually wear French cuffed shirts to church, but every now and then, once a year, once every couple of years, when I pull them out to wear them, it is a chore because they're black. They're covered in just terrible tarnish. So tarnished when I touch them, it's just um, immediately on my hands. This precious metal on its own, just, com- just tarnishing and oxidizing. And, you know, I got to get the stuff and I w- rub it all away. And okay, now they're shining and pretty and gleaming again. And then next year, I'm going to have to do it all again, right? The robe of silver on this uh, disgusting king. The Psalms declare that our Lord, our King, is clothed with a robe of light and that in him we know there is no darkness at all. And by means of his light, we see light, we're told in Psalm 36. We don't know what Herod said in his speech. It doesn't matter. It's not important, not worth hearing. But we know that whatever it was could only have been boasts or platitudes. After all, we've seen that from his throne only issued malice and death the whims of his violence. Here he is, the man who would starve whole cities for no reason, introducing a day of merriment and games as if he were some sort of great benefactor receiving applause from people who don't even know who he is and are just hoping that he won't turn his anger toward them. Verse 22, the assembled people began to shout, it's the voice of a God and not of a man. It seems clear that Luke is suggesting that this was part of the plan in the minds of the folks from Tyre and Sidon. They knew what kind of man Herod was. Why not get into his good graces through a little flattery, a little adulation? You know, as a side note, in the Bible, you almost never want to be part of the crowd of people shouting something. If you find yourself in the crowd of people shouting something, uh, try try to switch to the other side. Certainly not in the New Testament, at least. 
Going along with the crowd very quickly leads to things we don't want to be a part of in the spiritual realm often. We know why they were saying it that day. It was to save their food supply. But what an obscene thing to say. If Herod Agrippa was a god, we'd have to say and agree with the Incredible Hulk, puny god, right? I mean, this god is no good. This is a man who couldn't pay his own debts multiple times in his life, a man who couldn't keep hold of his own prisoners, a man who got where he was by betraying his own uncle, getting him banished out so he could steal the throne and pretend to be a king. And yet they praised him as a god. Unfortunately for Herod, there was someone else in the audience that day. Verse 23, at once an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give the glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. I don't usually think of angels being in attendance at inaugurations or State of the Union addresses, or here tonight for that matter, but the Bible gives us every reason to think that they are. The angelic ministry may be unseen, but it is shown by passages like this one and the famous story of Elisha and his worried servant who couldn't see the armies of the Lord. The angelic ministry is unseen, but it is all around us, and uh, just interesting to think angels in attendance at the speech. In this case, the angel had had enough of Herod's pride and willingness to receive glory that belongs only to God. And so he strode up to the platform, almost casually it seems, struck a single blow. The fight was over. Every now and then you get a scene like this in a movie. Some fighter, pompous and impressed with himself, swaggers into the ring or maybe onto the field of battle. Then the other guy comes in quietly, doesn't make a fuss, unassuming. The bell rings or the horn blasts, and in a second it's over. One punch, one blow, one swoop of the sword. Josephus records this incident in detail. He tells us that Herod suffered in pain and agony for five days before finally dying. Now, we remember that Luke was a doctor, and so he was probably being specific when he referenced the worms Scholars tried to decipher what he could have meant, and it is not pleasant reading, let me tell you. I'm going to go ahead and spare you their horrifying guesses. Things that are real that I just wish weren't real. I was like, give me COVID instead of whatever this is. It's just, just horrifying. Woo. Uh, no, I won't even give you one of them. It was just so bad. If you want to not sleep tonight, you look up what scholars think it could mean (laughs) that he was eaten by worms. But on the spiritual level, we can't help but connect Herod's physical death with the eternal death that was awaiting him. But that pain and torment would not end in a short five days. In the lake of fire, the worm does not die. The fire is not quenched. God is full of grace and mercy He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But along with that, he takes seriously the issue of his glory. He takes it very seriously. Isaiah, the prophet, says we are created for his glory, not our own. Jesus said he lived to glorify his father. The spirit operates in order to glorify the son. We are to seek God's glory, and we are told again and again he will not share it with another. Verse 24 says, but the word of God flourished and multiplied. Herod's words weren't worth recording that day, but the word of God expanded and grew like an incredible vine bearing fruit throughout the world. Not through men like Agrippa, but through humble servants like we read about in verse 25. 
says, after they had completed their relief mission, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, taking along John, who was called Mark. Herod was a divider, but Christ unites. Herod was looking around, who can I mess, mess with today? Who can I hurt today? Who, who can I drive apart today? What was Christ doing that whole time? Taking two people, Gentiles and Jews, that couldn't be farther apart, and bringing them together not just an affiliation, but into a family. We saw in the earlier passages how Gentile Christians who had never met some of these Jewish people were digging into their own pockets so that they could relieve the suffering of Jewish people. They were as divided as two cultures can be. Uh, and yet in Christ, we see this beautiful, loving unity. And uh, it's wonderful. Believers like Barnabas and Paul we see they're always bringing others along, including them, inviting them in, just like their Lord did. The Lord, like I said before, wants to include people in the rule of his kingdom. Herod was trying to get his own uncle knocked off so that he could be in power. In this case, Barnabas and Paul brought the man we called John Mark. I'm gonna be that guy for just a second. And then here's my disclaimer. From here on out, we're gonna call him John Mark, okay? but he's not John Mark. He's John, who is also called Mark. Now, for clarity, there's a bunch of Johns. There's some, a couple of different Marks, they think, but we'll call him John Mark. But he was, it would be like us saying Saul Paul. Saul Paul went to Ephesus, and then Saul Paul went to Corinthians. He's Saul, it's his Hebrew name. Paul, it's his Roman name. Pastor Jake pointed that out this morning in the men's study. So anyway, I'll be a nitpicker, and I'm just going to arm you with that in case you're ever in like really heated Bible trivia night, okay? He, technically, he's not called John Mark. He's John and Mark, not Saul Paul. Okay. Anyway, John Mark, we believe to be Barnabas's cousin based on some other uh, verses that we read, and they take him with them from Jerusalem back to Antioch. That's going to prove very important later on. In a final comparison of the kings here, we note that Jesus said about the business of bringing relief to people while Herod was doing what? Seeking to withhold, to destroy, to hurt, to starve. So why did the Jews celebrate this wicked king? They really did. As I said, Josephus, the Jewish historian, remembers him fondly. The Talmud does as well. The general populace of the time supported him, celebrated him. How could this be? How could this wicked non-Jew who did the things that he did how could he win the hearts of Israel? Even before he was a persecutor of Christians, people were in favor of him. What's going on? One source gives us this account. The synagogue attendant one day took a Torah scroll and handed it to the synagogue president who handed it to the high priest deputy who handed it to the high priest who handed it to the king. They were doing a ceremony with Agrippa. King Agrippa stood and received it and read standing, and the sages praised him for doing so. When Agrippa reached the commandment of Deuteronomy 17, 15, that you may not put a foreigner over you as king, oh, his eyes ran with tears. But they said to him, don't fear, Agrippa. You are our brother. You are our brother. Really? What's going on? One explanation is that Agrippa is revealed to be yet another type, yet another precursor Another understudy of that ultimate man of sin that the uh, devil is going to bring onto the world stage, the Antichrist. That foreigner whom the Jews will for a time rally behind during the Great Tribulation. 
You know, sometimes when discussing end times doctrine and talking about, you know, where's the Antichrist gonna come from? Who's he gonna be? Um, there are some folks who say it's just, he has to be Jewish because the Jews would never accept a non-Jewish Messiah. Well, he's gonna be Roman. And uh, to the argument that they would never accept a non-Jewish Messiah, they kind of do it a lot <laughs> in history. Uh, what did they do? They took a man, this Idumean, this grotesque man, full of violence and full of hatred, and said, oh, you're our brother. And one reason they celebrated him was because back in 41 AD, Caligula, remember that guy? He had wanted to defile the Jewish temple. He was gonna put a statue of himself in there and says, you know what, I don't care about this Jewish temple stuff. I'm putting my statue in there and you guys can all deal. Well, Herod wanted to please the Jews and he wanted to curry favor with them. It's gonna be helpful for him to have them under control. He was a friend of Caligula's and so he interceded on behalf of the Jewish people and said, hey, don't do that. Don't put your statue in there. And luckily, the Caligula at first was like, okay, I'm not gonna do it. And then he said, you know what, I am gonna do it. And then he was assassinated, so he didn't do it. And so the Jewish people were excited about this intervention and welcomed Herod, the wicked, vile blasphemer, the Idumean, yes, but let's welcome him with open arms. After all, what did he do? Protected the sanctity of our temple, protected the Jewish people in our interests. The exact same thing is going to happen again after the church is taken up in the rapture and the Antichrist is finally revealed. And what does he carry with him? The promise to help the Jewish people to support their interests, to protect their temple. But it's all just a ruse. The wicked king of the great tribulation is just going to uh, defile and destroy. He himself will set up the abomination that makes desolate in the temple. And so Herod serves as a, a little foreshadowing of that. What a comfort for us to reflect on the true king, Jesus Christ, by seeing such a dismal counterfeit. What a glorious Lord we serve, full of grace, full of majesty, full of kindness, full of power. There's one more comparison we might make tonight as we close. Look at those poor folks cowering beneath the throne of Herod, afraid of his anger. They could only hope to be spared from his hostility. But we who bow at the throne of King Jesus, we don't live that way. We don't need to scheme to get into God's good grace. He's shed it abroad over us. He's poured it out on the earth, sending it in abundance with peace, with his presence, with his help, with his sustenance. Instead of just hoping to be out of the line of fire, like the poor folks from Tyre and Sidon, we're able to be full of holy fire, full of the Holy Spirit, going out to herald the greatness of our king, working to glorify his kingdom because he's not our enemy, he's our friend. He wants better for us and more for us than we could ever ask or imagine. We get to continue to cultivate and multiply the word of God, which is vibrant and powerful and alive still as powerful, still as alive as it ever was. We're sent on mission to proclaim the king, the one good, glorious king of all the ages, Christ Jesus our Lord.